Dear gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we bow before you as we look forward to receiving your word this morning. And I just pray as the blind men cried out to Jesus, Lord, open our eyes. I just pray this morning, that's our cry this morning, that you would open our spiritual eyes to see the truth that you have revealed through your word and has left to share with us that we might receive them. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Greetings to each of you and welcome. I invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Joel. I am attempting to do, I guess you would call it an exposition of this book, just to simply go through the message that is contained in these several chapters and to seek to understand what God is saying to us today through this book. Just a, first of all, a a little bit of a background or just an overview maybe would be a better word of of what was happening here and and what the the time frame here and and what Joel was um, doing in his words of prophecy to the people. I obviously, I'm not going to take the time to read all of this, and and it was a little difficult for me after I started studying into this to really know what to um, all draw out of this, and and I thought about putting this into a couple different studies, but I'm going through the whole book today, and I will be reading some portions of it, but, but just trying to explain to you what the message is in those parts that I'm not reading. Joel was one of the earliest prophets. In fact, um, if we understand the timeline correctly, he wrote this prophecy right after Obadiah. Obadiah was one of the first prophets to speak, and then was Joel. So that can easily confuse us because of the order that these books are in in our Bibles. But the chronological order was um, Joel here was writing right after Obadiah. It was quite a while before Nehemiah, um, Jonah, Jeremiah, all these men um, that prophesied or that we have um, their prophecies written in God's word. So it was a very early time here in, in this history. He appears to be talking about, in chapter 1, about a... a current event that had just had or was taking place as he spoke, and that was a swarm of locusts. He says, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten, what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten, in verse 4. And some translations use, I think, the word caterpillar there, or whatever it was, there was some kind of insect here that came in and just wiped out pretty much all the plants. He talks about the, the, the trees being stripped of their bark and leaves. And the, the grain, the fields of grain were not yielding. The, the, the vineyards um, were destroyed. So obviously it was a distressing time, a calamity that had taken place here or was taking place. And though it can be debated, I think this probably was something that literally happened and was taking place. 
It's interesting to understand that Joel prophesied this near the time of the wicked king Ahaziel. And if you go back into Second Chronicles, I think it is, chapter 22 and 23, it talks about this time and what was taking place. So Ahaziel was a very wicked king, and he was killed, I think, after about a year of reigning. He didn't have any sons that were capable of taking over. So his mother, who we know as Queen Athaliah, took his place as the one who was ruling in Judah at that time. And she, too, was very wicked. In fact, it had been, been a, a very bad influence on him. So it was a time when there was a lot of wickedness. And then um, the story goes on that, that somebody um, rescued, I get all these names right, rescued Ahaziel's son, Joash. He was about one year old. They took him into the temple, kept him hidden there in secret. And when he was seven years old, they brought him out. And, and the priest, Jehoiada, was very influential in this. They brought this young boy out and declared him to be king. He was surrounded by by um, guards to protect him because they knew that the opposition they would face from Queen Athaliah. And indeed, she came in there into the temple crying treason, treason. And they took her out and had her killed. And Jehoiada, the priest, was very influential in this time in bringing about a reform. He then, after declaring Joash as the king, he, they destroyed the idols of Baal, destroyed the, the prophets of Baal, and made a covenant with the people and with God to, to follow the Lord and brought back the sacrifices in the temple. And so looking at that, it's very possible that what Joel was, was prophesying here, what he was write, had written here, was perhaps very influential in, in bringing the priest Jehoiada to bring about those reforms. They heard his message. They understood what Joel was saying. They, they realized the judgment from God that was going to come. And they changed their ways. So it's a book of, of giving both warnings and encouragement. It's a book of destruction and of restoration. It's a book of doom and gloom, along with a promise of joy. It uses what I call the comparative method of revelation by showing similarities. So he's talking here about this swarm of locusts and the destruction that it brought to their land and the desperate situation they were in. And then he compares that with a coming judgment. It also uses a contrasting method of revelation by noting opposites or showing the unlikenesses. I'm showing the, the judgment of God, the destruction that he would bring, along with his mercy and, and his um, promise of restoring the people. Prophecies like this are difficult to interpret. I don't claim to have a complete knowledge of what all these things mean. And I realize there is a lot of debate and confusion sometimes in, in what these prophets are referring to. But I think it's Important for us to understand, and this kind of helps me to, to get a grasp of, of, you know, what is this saying? Can I know for sure what it's saying or not? Is that a lot of these prophecies um, have more than one fulfillment, you could say. What he's talking about here in, uh, when he talks about God's judgment, obviously, I think it would be clear to all of us that, he's, that he is referring to 
the final judgment to some extent. That's the primary prophecy is there's a final judgment of God, what, what is revealed to us in Revelations and numerous other scriptures. But there's also times throughout history, has been times throughout history, when we have seen similar events um, to some of these judgments that he's describing here. In fact, he takes the, the swarm of locusts and, and compares that to God's judgment. So, lest we get too confused, um, just keep that in mind that sometimes these prophecies are referring to more than just one time. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a little later on here, but I'm not going to read anything from chapter 1, but that's primarily just the account of of a bit of a description of what was happening here. Um, Their their crops had failed. Um, It appears the people were probably going hungry or at least concerned about where their food was going to come from. The animals were hungry as a result of the crops being destroyed. And in in general... um, this was a, a time of, of sadness and despair among the people here. He then goes on to, in verse 13 of chapter 1, um, I will just note verse 13 and 14, where he calls the people to prayer. So they were seemed to be um, not only physically in need here because of the failure of their crops, but they were discouraged. And it says, um, joy has withered away from the sons of men. The, the sacrifices that the priests would make, they weren't able to do because there was no, there was no wine and there was no uh, wheat and barley because the fields were dried up. He says to them in verse 13 and 14, gird yourselves and lament, you priests, wail, you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So it was not only physical problems we were facing, it was a spiritual discouragement for them. And he calls them to bring that before the Lord in prayer, to cry out to God for that. And this some could be possibly referring to repentance as well, even though he doesn't use that word here. It may have been a call for them to repent of where they had strayed away from the Lord. But also I think it was a calling out to God for the, the security and the safety and the protection and provision that he would and could provide them. Much like a child, when he or she runs to their parent when they're in danger, when they're in need. Joel here is calling them to turn to the Lord in their desperate situation. Cry out to him for help. In verse 15 of chapter 1, there seems to be the beginning of a bit of a change in what he's speaking here. He's possibly there, uh, if if not in verse 15, but sure in chapter 2, he begins to speak of a calamity beyond what they were currently experiencing. So he says in verse 15, Alas, For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Referring to something beyond this current event. And I'd like to spend a little time here looking, what does he mean by the day of the Lord? It's a very significant phrase in this book. 
In fact, it's mentioned, I think, five times in here, which is in this short, in these three chapters, it's more often than, than any of the other books in the Bible, though that is a phrase you probably are familiar with, is throughout um, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, referring to a time that's called the Day of the Lord. So what is the Day of the Lord, and what is he referring to here? I think we need to understand that in order to, to understand um, this prophecy. I understand it as God's time. It says a day, so it's a set period of time, but probably not 24 hours. I think we we understand that. Um, But it's God's time. Man has his day, and the Lord has his day. There's a time when Satan is um, reigning in the earth, has power and has influence, and where man has... Um, the ability to do in some ways what he pleases to do. And yet, there's coming that day when it will be God's day, when God will show his power, will overthrow all the forces of evil. It's a time when God reveals his character, his holiness, his power, and supreme authority, and thus terrifying his enemies and bringing judgment. We understand it as often in Scripture referring to the final judgment, though also at times referring to an event that has or will take place before the final judgment or the end times. Um, Several examples of this. In Jeremiah 46, the day of the Lord refers to the defeat of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by the Babylonians. It uses that term, the day of the Lord. And in Ezekiel 13, again uses that phrase, and it seems to be referring to the Babylonian conquest and destruction of Jerusalem. So there you see how that these prophecies sometimes are referring to a, a current event or a near-in-the-future event, but primarily referring to the final events. It's common in prophecy to use a current or historical event to help us comprehend and to make us aware of a future end-time event. So verse 15 of chapter 1, Joel may be referring to the current destruction by the locust, or he may be referring to an army that would possibly invade Judah if they did not change their wicked ways. And we know that that possibly, again, we don't know for sure, but possibly that was influential in bringing reform and in, in helping um, Jehoiada the priest to, to be motivated to bring those reforms Or it could possibly be referring to the future and final judgment of God. So now I want to focus on God's judgment here that he speaks about. And the the encouraging part, like I mentioned, there's there's this doom and gloom and, and this prophecy of terrible things that are happening. But he then ends with, he goes on to to bring, to reveal to us the restoration that God will bring. But the Lord will restore, the Lord will give back to his people. And so we, we will also get to the encouraging part of this. But God's judgment is talked about in chapter 2, verses 2 through 11, as well as chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. God's judgment He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain, and let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. 
a day of darkness and gloominess. And he goes on to describe this day, and I'm not going to read all that right now. But he gives a description of this day, of the destruction that will take place. And I like to just compare what he's describing here in this, this passage with some other scriptures that use similar wording describing the end time events. Um, again, I, I find it hard to know what to read here and what not. I may just, just go over a few of these verses here, verse 2 through 11, where it talks about God's judgment. Uh, a people come great and strong, the like of whom have never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns, the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. There uses that comparison of like the Garden of Eden, but behind this, this judgment is a desolate wilderness. With a noise like chariots over the mountaintops, they leap. I'm sorry, I missed verse 4. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over the mountaintops, they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain, all faces are drained of color. Now this is describing this army. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another, everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Describes this army of God like one who will not fail. He will not stumble. He won't turn aside. He um, describes them as dodging the weapons that come against them. Several other passages of scripture where we see similar type of wording when describing the end times. Isaiah 13, 9. The day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinner's from it. Zephaniah 1 4 or 14. The great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty man shall cry out. We again hear that, that noise. He referred to that here in Joel as well. And Zephaniah 1 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. We see that complete destruction. There's no escaping. Nothing will be able to deliver them from the Lord's wrath. Malachi 4.5 Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And Acts 2.20 There um, we go to the New Testament and Peter in his sermon says The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Again, we see there the complete destruction. There's no escaping. And it comes as a thief in the night. Now, that's, that's a phrase you're probably fairly familiar with. 
And we think of that as coming suddenly, not expecting it. But notice that Joel also talks about this here in chapter 2. Where he says, he's describing the Lord's army. They run to and fro, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter at the windows like a thief. This is the description of God's judgment. And it should cause us, in a sense, to fear. To be in awe of Him. The beauty of something restored must be contrasted to the former condition or to the ruin and destruction. God's judgment and rescue from that, from that judgment. So we want to look at, at the restoration that the Lord has for His people. And in order to really understand that or appreciate that, we also need to, first of all, see and understand the judgment that is coming. So when you think about restoring an old piece of equipment or an old car or an old house, uh, sometimes we see these two pictures of before and after of something that somebody has restored. So when you see the condition it was in, you can appreciate what a person has done to restore it. When you see what it looks like when it's new or restored, you can appreciate um, the work, what was done to restore that compared to, to what it looked like when it was, we could say, in destruction. <clears throat> and that's what Joel is doing here. He's describing to us what the day of the Lord will, will be like and the awfulness of it. But he doesn't stop there, thankfully. He gives us hope. He gives us encouragement. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, he says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the altar, between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Do you see the, the similarity here to what Joel said earlier when he was calling the people to, to, to um, cry out to God because of the swarm of locusts, because of the loss of their crops? Here he is saying, when we face this judgment of the Lord, we're to turn to him again in repentance and in crying out to him to help his people. Rend your heart and not your garments. He's calling for a repentance that is deeper than just an outward action, but it's something that goes all the way to the heart. There is a weeping here because God is not seen among his people, because his people are not portraying to the world who he is. It's more than a repentance for personal sin. In fact, he doesn't really seem to dwell on that or even use that word repentance but it's a crying out to God for help in calamity and a desire that he would be glorified and lifted up. 
And that certainly will, does include repentance from the sin, a turning around. But it's, it's, I think, more than that. It's just calling out to God, and it's this desire that God would be glorified. That God would be visible among his people. And that's the time that we live in. We know there is yet a judgment coming, but there's a time here when God will show his mercy to people who call out to him. And we should have that same desire to call out to God. Um, It should burden us that his name is a reproach in the nations. We should come together with weeping because of the condition of his people. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 32, and in chapter 3, portions of chapter 3, it talks about the Lord's restoration and his, his care for his people. The Lord will be zealous for his land. I'll begin in verse 18 there. He will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive them away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord for God, your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down to you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame." So there we see some of that comparison where he, he seems to be possibly referring to back to that swarm of locusts and, and promising a deliverance or showing that, you know, this is just for a time and God can turn this around and again cause your crops to grow. But he's also obviously referring to something greater than that, to that judgment that he was just referring to earlier, that complete destruction that God is going to bring and showing us that God will indeed look out for his people. He will rescue them. He will restore them. His people will not be put to shame. Though for a time, uh, the the nations, the world, laughs at the Christians, make fun of God's people, they will not be put to shame. He will remember them. In chapter 3, verses 1, I want to, and verses 1 and verse 16, I want to especially point out something in there. In, in, chapter, or in verse 1, it says, Behold, in those days and at that time, and that is referring to the great and awesome day of the Lord, 
When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all the nations. And then again, he goes into describing God's judgment on the nations, that complete destruction that will take place. But notice that he says, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. That along with verse 16, the Lord will also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heaven the heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. There it's referring to God taking his people out. When, when he says to bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, those who were in slavery to sin, he is bringing out before this destruction comes to pass. He will be a shelter for them and a strength to the children of Israel. To me, that seems to be indicating that in this time of judgment, in this army that is coming, bringing complete destruction, God's people will be saved from out of that. In Egypt, God said, let my people go out of the slavery and captivity. In Babylon, at a set time and in miraculous ways, God brought them out of captivity. Hitler attempted to wipe out the Jews, God's people. But today they have returned to their nation of Israel today. These all are examples of how in the past God has taken his people uh, out of captivity. And I believe examples to us of, of how God will be faithful in the end to also rescue his people and to take them out of this coming judgment and destruction. These examples and many more are in a sense partial fulfillments. They're current or historical events that remind us of a future end-time event. What does the Lord restore? Here in chapter 2, he says, God's Spirit is poured out on all flesh. In verse 28 and 29, and that is a passage that, again, Peter refers to in the book of Acts. He says that there at Pentecost, that this was being fulfilled, that God's spirit would be poured out. I think that's, I'm trying to find it. I think it may be in chapter three where he refers to that. No, it's not chapter three. Chapter two, verse 28 and 29 Shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. This is part of God's restoration. And again, we understand that 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 was at least a partial fulfillment of Pentecost. In the Old Testament times, God gave his spirit to certain men and women at certain times for certain reasons. But now was a day when all those who called upon God could have the presence of his spirit in their lives. His spirit will be poured out on all flesh. That is part of God's restoration. Today we can have his spirit within us to guide us and to lead us into truth. He also talks about a satisfaction that takes place in this restoration. In verse 19, you will be satisfied. You will no longer, I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. He talks about bringing back the food 
The, they were in a situation currently here where they were going hungry, or at least close to that, because their crops have been destroyed. But God says in this restoration, you will experience satisfaction. I think he refers to that another time too, and I can't lay my eyes on that right now, but this satisfaction, there will, you will no more be a shame or a reproach in verse 19, in 26, and in 27 refers to that. My people shall never be put to shame. And I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. That restoration is, is doing away with that where God's people are, are made fun of and are reproached and persecuted. There will be restoring of what was taken away in verse 25. Where he talks about returning to them the years of the swarming locust. And what they had consumed. The restoration that the Lord has for his people is a restoring of what was taken away. We go back to the Garden of Eden when sin entered into the world and and what was taken away from man at that time as a result of the curse. That will again be restored. That That life that's free of sin and all its effects. Also three times here he mentions that there will be no fear or there will be gladness or rejoicing. Joy is restored. We know that in many ways in the world today, joy is taken away. That we can have that joy in Christ, yet as long as we live in this world, that joy will not be complete. But in his restoration, there will be no fear. There will be gladness and rejoicing. In Matthew 19, uh, 27 to 30, I'd like to point something out to you there where it also refers to, we just went through this in Sunday school not long ago, it refers to the Lord's restoration, his restoration that he has for his people. And this is where the disciples were asking Jesus, um, what's our reward going to be? You know, we we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, which means the restoration, I see that as referring to the same thing. When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. There is a reward that he brings to us at the restoration. God also will avenge his people, which means that he will retaliate or punish those who have hurt his people. Revelations chapter 6, it says that the martyrs, those who have died for Christ, for the word of God, they cry out in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 6. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was, were, was completed. So they're crying out to God here, wondering when they're going to be avenged. And God 
is telling them, not yet. But that time is coming when God will avenge for his people. This too is part of the restoration. And we see that here in the book of Joel when he talks about the nations being destroyed and there being no more sin. So then we move on to the final and eternal state of God and his people in the end of chapter 3, the last few verses there. And here's where we also see this avenging, this taking place. He says, the Lord... I'll read, starting verse 16. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. We see a complete absence of sin. No sinners there. All those um, who refuse to repent and come to God have been destroyed. It will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Achaeus. Egypt shall be a desolation, Edom a desolate wilderness. And, and I think there, Egypt and Edom are, in a sense, referring to sin. God often used that of his people, the people of Israel, as his people and the countries around them as the unbelievers, as the sinners. Egypt shall be, des- shall be a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, because of the violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I have not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. There we see those, those martyrs there in Revelations that were crying out, when will you avenge us? They were, they were waiting for that day, anticipating that day. Here he describes that day. When there will be no more sin, when God's people will be with him, he will dwell with them. <clears throat> also note the, the everlasting presence of God in this. There's not only this absence of sin, but there's this this God dwelling with his people that it brings out here. It says in verse 17, I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. And again in the end in 21, for the Lord dwells in Zion. God is going to be present with his people and there will be no sin there. In Ezekiel 48, verse 35, it says, all the, and he's there describing this, this city, I think referring to a place in the end times or in, in the, the city of Jerusalem in the end times. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that, that day shall be called the Lord is there. The city is the presence of God. And also... Zechariah 2.10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. That is the hope that we have. That is what the restoration will bring. We will again be in the presence of God, that he will dwell with us, and there will be no sin there. My challenge to you is to, to not look at these Old Testament prophets as boring reading. Uh, I know sometimes 
these things are difficult to understand and, and we tend to skim over them. But there's a promise here for us today. There's an encouragement here for us. That there is a restoration coming and whatever calamities we might be facing today, God is working for his people. He will be a shelter for them. Today in the pandemic that we're experiencing or whatever calamity you might be in, does my life display a hopefulness in this future restoration? Does my life display a trust in God who cares for his people? Does my life display a weeping when God's name is a reproach? And does my life display a fear of God's judgment on sin? Not something that I need to be afraid of if my heart is right with God, but a fear because of the terribleness of it and of the people who will be destroyed at that time. That should cause us to have a burden for the lost and for the people around us. Display to them this trust in God that they too can have. When we put our trust in God, who will restore his people. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Old Testament prophet and the words that he has brought to us that we can read today. We acknowledge that sometimes these words are difficult to understand. Help us to grasp the meaning that you have for us. We know that there is a future judgment day when there will be destruction. We know that you care for your people. You've promised us here that you will be a shelter for your people in that day. You will rescue us and restore us to a condition like we have never experienced on this earth. Help us to display in our lives to the the people around us, the people we work with, our families, our friends, our neighbors, to be a display of trust in you, of relying upon you, knowing and hoping in you that there is this day of restoration coming. And also a weeping for the sin around us, for the sin in our own lives, and our need of your mercy and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.